the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Josh Pick is the Chief Investment Advisor with Aptus Wealth Management, a state-registered investment advisory firm. This program is sponsored by Aptus Wealth Management. Exposure to ideas and financial vehicles discussed should not be considered investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell financial vehicle. This information should not be considered tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult with professionals to see if any ideas expressed would fit their specific situation. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Securities can fluctuate and when redeemed may be more or less than when originally invested. Bruce Hooley and Josh Pick with you. Another edition of the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. We love being with you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email your questions, Bruce at SalemMedia.com. Bruce at SalemMedia.com. Josh and I get together on the radio pretty regularly every Monday on The Answer at 12.30 p.m. And we meet here on Fridays to discuss current events and to get you strategically thinking about retirement, about managing your wealth. You've worked hard. There's no reason why you shouldn't grow that nest egg and have peace of mind as you approach retirement. So, Josh, welcome to the show. And we've got student loan forgiveness in uh, some form this week with Joe Biden announcing that $10,000 in student loan will be forgiven if you make up to $125,000 as an individual, $250,000 as a couple. If you took out a Pell Grant, you can get loan forgiveness up to $20,000. Everybody wants to know what it's going to cost the federal government. And as of yet, we do not have answers because they say they don't know how many people are going to take them up on it. I'm scratching my head trying to figure out why wouldn't someone take them up on it? The only thing I can come up with is they don't know that it exists because they don't watch television. Other than that, why wouldn't you take them up on it? I, I don't know. Personal integrity, like if you owe 30, 40 grand and you feel like I signed my name on the dotted line, I agreed to do this, the right thing to do is to pay it back. I understand that all day long, but it's the same dilemma that I had when they were sending out stimulus checks. I didn't feel like it was good for the country for $1,400 checks to go out to everybody. I had that conversation with my wife, and I finally landed on the fact that if everybody else is taking it, I'm a moron not to take it. And I would imagine that the reaction will be the same here eventually on student loan forgiveness. Well, ultimately, you are going to pay for it, right? Correct. I mean, the money doesn't come out of the sky, so... I think the general belief, and if, if I'm anything, Bruce, it's, it's uh, you know, I'm kind of a sounding board for my clients and for potential clients on not just um, how do I get where I want to go, but but also vocalizing maybe their disgust or mm-hmm. um, what they don't like about what's happening with the Fed and the, and the tax changes or these stimulus programs. And all of them are kind of saying the same thing in response to that, and that is I'm going to have to pay for it. The money isn't just being – it's either being created and I'm going to be uh, – you know, my, my dollars are going to be inflated on it, so that's a problem. Or I'm going to end up paying for it in higher taxes. So I might as well take advantage of the program because everybody else is anyway. So I don't think people are going to sit this one out. I think they're going to take advantage of it. Yeah, I don't think they are either. And uh, we'll see what it does to inflation. Uh, I really believe that the worst part of this is just ingraining the idea that you're not responsible for things that you agree to do. Uh, the inflationary impact of it, I'm not smart enough to tell, but if inflation is uh, too much money chasing too few goods, by forgiving debt, 
are we in effect giving people $10,000 or $20,000 more to spend on something else that they would have previously spent on paying back a loan? Is that an inflationary impact or no, that money's out there. They're going to have to pay it over here for loan, you know, loan payments, or they're going to have to pay it over here for a car or goods or gas or whatever. So there's no difference. Can you straighten that out for me? Well, I mean, that's a that's a tangled web. I, I suppose that could happen, but if it doesn't happen, what do we have to combat inflation with? It seems to me, and you know, Chairman Powell came out today at noon and said we're going to raise interest rates quote aggressively moving forward. Mm-hmm. So let's say that we put, I have fifty thousand dollars worth of student loan debts. They're going to forgive ten of it, and then they're going to raise the interest on my student loans by three or four percent. Did my payment really change? Uh, no, what, probably not. So. I think the hope is that what you said will happen will happen, but I'm of the belief similar to you that what message are we sending in the way of debt acquisition? Are we training people that go ahead and over leverage yourself no matter what the purchase is? Because ultimately the backstop is the federal government will back, will bail you out. I, I think that's a, that's a, a very delicate tap dancing on a minefield that I just don't, I certainly don't want to teach my kids that. Nope. And I feel terrible for the people who may have just paid off, you know, you got that big bonus check, just paid off your student loans, we're doing the happy dance in your living room, and you're so proud of yourself, and then a week later you find out, didn't need to do it. You can get with Josh and his team at Aptus Wealth Management by calling 614-917-1040 or by arranging your free consultation on the web. Their web address is aptuswealth, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. They're located just off Route 750, just a little bit north of 270 and 23, easy to get to. And they do a lot of their work with clients online. So if you're around the country, you're listening to this on the iHeartRadio app or the TuneIn or Radio.com app, or you're dialing it up at 989theanswer.com. Josh and his team are very versed in dealing with people from uh, distances away. So uh, don't let that stand in your way of getting the best financial advice out there and having a plan and a purpose toward your retirement planning. Okay, so I looked into all the student loan numbers, and I was very surprised to see that in Ohio, one and three-quarter million people have outstanding student loan debt of $67 billion, and that in America, in America, 17% of student loan borrowers still outstanding are over the age of 50. So um, those people are the people you're dealing with, I think, a lot of clients over the age of 50. So how much, as you go through your free consultation with people, and you're talking about assets and liabilities, in the past, how much has student debt come up, or does it not come up because the people who are coming to you are the kinds of folks who understand, I got to get rid of this, and they've gotten rid of it long before age 50? I would say it's a mixed bag, but in my office, the majority of people that come through do not have student loans anymore, But in, not after 50, but you would be very surprised as to how many people in their late 40s still have student loans. It seems like 50 is about the tipping point. But I'm shocked to hear that you said it's one in three quarter million people. Were there nine million people in Ohio? Yeah. yeah that's a huge percentage. That's a huge percentage. Huge, yeah. right? And I think this whole problem was exacerbated by the issue that you could get student loans for free to begin with. Meaning for free is the wrong word. You can get student loans um, pretty much carte blanche, right? The federal government yep. backed it up. They'll always give you money. 
Uh, what happened to the cost of tuition when that occurred? It drastically outpaced inflation. Um, really, universities were left with a kind of a, a free ticket to charge whatever they want, because no matter what you charge, I'll just borrow more money. And the arbitrage or that, you know, what I'm going to make with a college degree far outweighs not having a college mm-hmm. degree. So I'm better off paying off those loans. I don't not sure where that tipping point is. Uh, I think that we're starting to have the dialogue, starting to have the conversation of does college make sense for all occupations? Um, but I don't know what the answer to that is. But what I do know is if we start forgiving student loans, allowing people to borrow more and then forgive them, what do you think is going to happen to the cost of education? I think it's going to skyrocket. And in my own personal framework here, admittedly dated, uh, but my first quarter at Ohio State, fall of 1978, my academic fees, full-time student, were $283. My room and board in uh, Morrill Tower, $569. So let's round up 600 bucks to live and eat, $300 for my academic course load. I was going to Ohio State three times 900 bucks. I was going to Ohio State for a year for $3,000. And the cost of college since 1980, so pretty much right there in my wheelhouse, has increased by 1,200%. And I don't understand why it has had to increase by 1,200% other than that old line, you know, why'd you climb a mountain? Because it's there. Why'd the cost go up? Because they could. Well, in regular inflation, if you look at what that's been over the same time period. Was it 200% or something like that? It's about 400. Okay. But four versus... 1,200. 1,200. I mean, we're talking about three times difference, right? So it's been growing at three times the rate of regular inflation. And to answer your question, where is that money gone? If you take a deep dive, it's gone to administration. It's gone to trying to keep up with the Joneses at the university level. You know, better rec centers, better this, better that. It's not really going to education, which is the big concern. But, you know, there's some potential respite down the path, and we'll talk a little bit more, hopefully, about taxes. And, you know, that's something that's coming up a lot. But Mm -hmm. This dialogue or this question, you know, as I have three boys, as you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, 16 through five, uh, what's the right answer? It depends on, we really need to take a, a, a deep dive into what are you going to do with your education? Uh, obviously, I went to college. I'm in the financial business. I yeah. couldn't have done what I'm doing now without college. So I'm very pro-college, but it's not for everybody. And I think when it is for everybody and everybody can afford it, regardless of the occupation that they choose, it gets outlandish in the way of cost because demand's so high. Uh, planning is a good thing in a lot of different realms. And at Aptus Wealth Management, they specialize in planning toward retirement. You are going to work. You are going to make money. You better grow it. You better have a plan for it. They do. They can help you get to retirement in a great position. 614-917-1040 to get a hold of Josh and the Aptus team. They'll set up a free consultation with you. Well, they'll take you through the process of learning who you are, what your priorities are. It is not a system where it's a one-size-fits-all. It's one that's tailored to you. You'll understand it. Thus, you'll feel better about it, knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it. Aptus Wealth Management, easy to work with. And you can also set up your consultation on the web at Aptus Wealth, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. Yeah, to the point of whether college is worth it or not now, um, here particularly in the Columbus area, we're on the cusp of what we think will be a big intel boom and lots of construction jobs and lots of ancillary jobs around that. And they are very aware that they are going to have a shortage of electricians and plumbers. And that is a job that you can own your own business and you can make a very good living at. And so it'll be an interesting um, evaluation 
for young people to make now as they look at the price of college. And I find it interesting, Josh, that if these loans, first of all, let me pursue this. I've heard in the uh, aftermath of this student loan forgiveness that the loans were unfair, that the way the loans were structured were you'd you'd pay and you'd pay and you'd pay and you'd pay and you'd pay nothing but interest and you'd end up still owing a big chunk of principal on the loan. Um, yet they're still making loans, right? Have they been adjusted in the way that they're making them? Or what do you know about the loan structure and as you judge it, because you certainly have uh, expertise in these matters, is there anything unique about how it's structured that make it a flawed program? No, no. I, I would say, you know, if you look at student loans in general, there's two different types of federal student loans, one that's subsidized and one that's unsub- unsubsidized. Subsidized just simply means that you're not accruing interest while you're in college. Unsubsidized means you're accruing interest while you're in college. Both of those, for the most part, other than outside loans, do not require payment until you get out of college. And those payments have been kind of the can has been kicked for most people here since COVID. But ultimately, regardless of how they structure the loan, you have an outstanding balance. You have an interest rate that you're paying on those monies. And then you have a payment. You can pay whatever you want. And there are, if you say you don't understand how they work, there's about 975,000 amortization calculators on the internet. (laughs) Go click one in and say, I'd like to pay this off over 11 years. And you can find out what your payment needs to be over 11 years. Now, it's very possible that maybe the federal government, and I don't know the answer to this, maybe they came up with a payment that they thought was reasonable for people to afford, which requires them to pay for the next 30 years versus when I was in college, it was 10 years. You paid off in 10 or you could, you know, apply to pay it off in 15 or 20. And now I'm hearing that people are paying off student loans over 30 and you know 40 years, which is like a extended mortgage payment. But I think this is going to be kind of the general. Uh, you know, obviously this show is about me trying to give advice. Correct. I think this is going to be the general um, pathway as we look at you know the price of cars, for example. Let's let's look at all the things that we borrow money for: price of cars, price of price of homes. Price of homes are skyrocketing. Price of cars are skyrocketing. How are people going to afford them? Well, there's only two ways: either demand drops, or you know companies just get altruistic and say, we don't want to charge that much and we'll make less profit, which I think we can both agree is a valid fallacy. It's not going to happen. Or we just extend the duration of the loan out that we do. So I think we're very close to seeing 10-year car loans. I think we'll see 40-year mortgages. And it's going to be your responsibility to manage your debt position the way that you can handle it. It's not up to the, this is this, we talk about this off the air all the time, accountability. Yes. Let's be accountable for the decisions that we make. And ignorance is not a justifiable excuse. So when it comes to planning, we have to be accountable in my office for what we provide you as advice and planning. And that plan has to be one that's going to succeed. But we can't simply just say, "Ah, it'll probably work. It'll probably work. You'll probably be good. That isn't a plan. And if you're taking out loans going, "Ah, I'll figure it out when it's, that's not a that's not a good plan. No, it's not a good plan. And to your point about extending out the period of time for us to eradicate a loan from our liabilities, I remember I'm younger I'm I'm much older than you, but I remember when it was common you'd pay your car off in four years. And then it went to five and to six. And uh there were fifteen year mortgage loans before there were thirty year mortgage loans. And you know, now it just seems like we have become very comfortable with the fact that we're going to carry a lot of debt. And there are some financial advisors that say debt is uh, anathema. You should never have it. Dave Ramsey is obviously uh, at the top of that list. And what do you tell your clients when they come in and they have debt? Are you someone who say, hey, you got to chase this off your balance sheet right away because it's doing X, Y, and Z? Or is there such a thing as 
I'm not going to say good debt, but useful or understandable debt. There's definitely different kinds of debt. So you have bad debt in the way of credit card debt. You have bad debt in the way of, you know, taking on debt to buy a piece of furniture or Mm -hmm. something like that. But if you have a collateralized debt, like a house, it's an appreciating asset, you have a good equity position in it, um, is that an unreasonable thing to have? Probably not. But I think really what we've gotten away from is we're starting to trust the ratios of what maybe a bank tells us or trust the ratios of some expert that tells Mm -hmm. us. What we should be doing is the basic old school sit down, finance, balance the checkbook. What do we want out of life? So we're a married couple. Uh, We both work. Okay. Do we want to put ourselves in a position that because we both have a a really significant income, we can buy this beautiful house, but we're always both going to have to work no matter what. We're always going to have to. Oh, otherwise we're going to have to move. Or do we want to put ourselves in a position where maybe we have a little bit more, uh, a lower love standard of living, but we have more flexibility in the choices that we make. That's a choice. And it's okay to choose one versus the other, but it shouldn't be made arbitrarily. You should make that choice very definitively. You should put a lot of thought into it because when you're talking about a 30-year loan, you know, there was a time, imagine you bought a house in 2007, you're stuck with that house for a pretty long period of time Mm -hmm. or your credit's going to be demolished. Uh, So you have to be in this for any time you buy a house, you buy a stock, you buy anything like that, it better be a five to 10-year commitment at least. Um, So you have to view the debt positions the same way. Aptus Wealth Management, folks, get a hold of them, 614-917-1040 or aptuswealth.com, A-P-T-U-S. Listen to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint radio show here on The Answer and catch Josh and I for Money Monday on The Answer every day at 12, every Monday rather, at 12.30 p.m., 989theanswer.com if you'd like to listen online. So you talked about the fact that it's really not a... Um, a good way to dismiss the fact that you got yourself in a bad position owing money by saying, I didn't understand the loan or um, I'm just making the minimum payment. Uh, Talk about a little bit how much people can uh, reduce the time that they're liable for a loan just by making a little bit of an extra payment every month. And I I know in my own case, uh, I wanted to pay my house off early. And so I just looked at what one monthly payment was and I divided it by 12 to get an amount of money and then made that extra amount every month, that payment amount every month. And essentially I was making 13 house payments a year instead of 12. And that enabled me to knock a couple years off my payment. When you, when you start eating away at the principle of a loan, it's really amazing what it can do. And again, there's calculators everywhere on this, you know, whether I pay my mortgage biweekly as opposed to monthly and you cut off years of your mortgage, just in the amount of time and interest or, um, you know, maybe taking out a first position equity line in your house uh, to lower your overall mortgage. And this is a little bit more complicated one, but you put your savings into that. So it lowers the overall debt position. There, there's a bunch of things you can do to manage debt. Um, you know, it's going to be a difficult conversation, I think, moving forward, because there's so many people that are sitting on home notes in the two and three percent range. And does it make sense? I, I get this question a lot. Does it make sense to pay off my mortgage today mm-hmm. at two or three in percent interest? And my answer to that would be obviously it depends on your situation. If you're going to retire next year, maybe that cash flow is important. But in general, my answer is no. Um, you know, if even if interest rates climb and you can get a CD at the bank making six, seven percent in the next couple of years, which I don't think is outlandish uh, to foresee. Uh, you're better off playing that arbitrage game and then paying off your debt later on. 
But again, it, it's it's unique to everybody's situation. I heard that same song and dance that I'm telling you right now over the last 20 years, and I didn't believe it at all because you couldn't play that arbitrage game because interest rates at the bank were basically the same as what the mortgage rate was on your note. Mm-hmm. But we hit such a low point where people were refinancing that I think there is going to be that opportunity to play that arbitrage between what you're paying on and what you can earn. You know, and this principle of paying extra on a loan to eat away at the principal is not very far removed. In fact, not far removed at all from the principle of investing every month in your retirement, of counting your retirement investment as a bill you need to pay. And you might say, well, what good does setting aside this amount of money every month? Like, I want to retire with a million dollars, and this is very insignificant toward getting me to a million dollars. But again, when you look at a loan amount and you take out a loan to buy a house, and if you really extrapolated out how much you'd have to pay back to cancel that loan, you know, it'd make you sick. But that same principle can work for you moving forward if you're putting a little bit of money away. And I know that's something that you guys advocate for at Aptus Wealth Management. Yeah, really an ounce of prevention's worth a pound to cure. I remember when I first got in the business, this is rewinding the clock back to 19, might be off on this, 1998. I believe. Um, I was given a book called The Richest Man in Babylon. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's I've a, heard of it, yes. It's a very old book. It's 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 really a small paperback. It's a pretty easy read. And it's definitely written in the time period that it was written. So I would say for somebody who's given that when they're 21, 22 years old, it's not the most exciting read. But ultimately, it's an entire book that's been read by generations and finance classes that simply says, pay yourself first. That's it. That's mm-hmm. all it says. So you you can save. There's your cliff notes. Pay yourself first. How much should I pay myself first? Well, the richest man in Babylon said 15%. If you save 15% of everything you ever make, you will never be poor, ever. And really, that he doesn't say 1500 bucks. He doesn't say $20,000 as a bonus every year. He says 15%. So the earlier you can get into that habit, whether you're making $15 an hour or you're making $150,000 a year, 15%. And I know some people listening are going to go, well, that sounds good conceptually, but I just can't do it. Well, you can't do it because you put yourself in a position not to do it. You need to do it immediately as soon as possible and get in the habit. And I think ultimately what we all, all end up doing is we take that first job and we say, well, as soon as I start making more money, then mm-hmm. I'll start saving. Mm-hmm. And that track continues. I'll start working out as soon as, right? And nobody ends up going to the gym. You got to just, when's the best time to start right now? Start saving it right now. Well, I can't start with 15%. All right, start with five. Tick it up. But you got to start doing it immediately. And I'm telling you the power of, I have these conversations at colleges uh, all the time, trying to educate kids that are graduating on the power of getting ahead versus the power of getting behind. And Mm -hmm. both are equally powerful, but we never talk about the prior, only the latter. Yeah, that's a great lesson. And I know in my case, uh, when I first started out, you know, a $100 a month visa bill, uh, I was like, wow, how am I going to pay this off? And now, obviously, as you make more and get, you know, more successful, your uh, parameters of what's a lot changes. And yet, if you save 15% as you move up, that can be a pretty constant investment. And that's something I think that you can live with. And you're right. If you don't start, uh, you never will. If you're waiting for a better time to start, you never will. And you have to prioritize it. And I would even challenge people and say, you have to figure out a way to get started. There are all kinds of adjustments that we make in our budgets when you know, our income goes down. Okay, maybe we don't go out to eat as much. or Maybe we don't get a new car when we'd like to get a new car. 
But you have to make that adjustment and you have to make that sacrifice. And it is a sacrifice, but the great thing about it is it pays off down the road. You know, there, I remember when I was a kid, I like most kids, I'm sure, I want to put an, a stereo in my car, mm-hmm. right? Because I had an 8-track in my car, so I want to put a stereo in my car. And I didn't have the money. And uh, I don't know if my mom was trying to teach me a lesson or maybe she just didn't have the money. Uh, but she said, no problem. Put it on my credit card and you pay off the bill. Mm. If you can imagine, you know, a $200 bill when you're 16 years old, it might as well have been a million-dollar home yeah. loan. Uh, and when I paid it off, she actually said, now here's how much you you actually paid on that stereo. And it was a very valuable lesson. I went, "That's I, I just paid twice as much as I was supposed to on that stereo, right? <laughs> and I paid it off at 10 bucks a month or whatever it was. Um, and I think, you know, we all kind of need to learn that lesson. But as we rewind back, you know, I don't want people to think you come into my office and what I'm going to do is lecture you on your spending habits. I'm not going to, we're not going to deep dive into uh, what, what you're spending $173 on your cable bill. That seems a little exorbitant. That's not my job. What my job is, is to try and improve your situation, whether that's I have a 401k and I don't know if it's invested right. Um, am I saving enough to get to the end zone I want to get to? Or do I need to reduce my expenses because I'm heading 100 miles an hour straight into the wall? It's up to you. We're going to figure out the solutions. Aptus Wealth Management, 614-917-1040. Aptus Wealth, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. Josh Pick is the Chief Investment Advisor with Aptus Wealth Management, a state-registered investment advisory firm. This program is sponsored by Aptus Wealth Management. Exposure to ideas and financial vehicles discussed should not be considered investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell financial vehicles. This information should not be considered tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult with professionals to see if any ideas expressed would fit their specific situation. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Securities can fluctuate and when redeemed may be more or less than when originally invested. You're listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. Bruce Hooley with you, along with Josh Pick of Aptus Wealth Management. I'd highly encourage you to get a hold of Josh and his team at Aptus Wealth Management for your retirement planning, your wealth management. It's something that we all do, work, and something that we all envision, retirement. So why leave questions unanswered? Why live with a lack of peace of mind? Why not have a plan? Why not understand the plan? Why not execute the plan and then reap not just the results, but also the peace of mind? Aptus Wealth Management located on Route 750, just off of it, actually, north of 270 and 23. Very easy to get to and easy to reach for your free consultation at 614-917-1040 or at aptuswealth.com. And, Josh, we've had in the news lately a Inflation Reduction Act passed, which will increase the size and the budget of the IRS. And so I would imagine that a lot of people that you talk with are concerned about taxes, and that's probably not a new concern But we've talked about taxes and managing your tax burden. And when people come in and sit with you and your team, what are they needing to know about taxes? What do you find that they don't know and should know? Well, you know, the government spent, what, $80 billion on 87? $80 billion expansion and 87,000 IRS agents. Right. And and the the thing that we hear is they're only going to go after people of a certain income category. Right. Right. does anybody believe that? I, I certainly don't believe that. I think everybody's skeptical about the fact that the audits will not be expanded to anyone making less than $400,000 a year. Yeah. That's the promise. Yeah, I would say. And the unfortunate reality of that is if you're making more than $400,000 a year and you get an audit, you can afford to pay somebody to help defend you in said audit. If you're making, if you're one of the billionaires that are supposedly going to get caught in this net the most, you have a whole team of people who can help you 
navigate the issue of the audit. Mm-hmm. But if you're making fifty, sixty thousand bucks a year, do you have an extra five hundred or a thousand dollars to help defend yourself in the way of an audit? And if you haven't been through an audit, um, I almost wish you could kind of go through one kind of as an exercise just to see what is involved, not only just in the time delay frustration, but also in kind of what you need to provide and how sometimes uh, ambiguous their requests are. It can become very difficult. So if nothing else, it's a huge time issue uh, mm-hmm. on your behalf. So knowing that, clients, I'm sure, are very concerned about not just getting audited, but what do I do? You know, there's so many tax law changes that I'm hearing coming down the pipe that I, I just don't even know how to handle it. And first thing is, anytime there's a significant amount of change, there is going to be opportunity. So it's not all going to be negative. Even amongst that negative, it's kind of the old adage, right? If you give me the rules to the game, I'll figure out how to win the game. Mm-hmm. But you have to have the knowledge base to be able to decipher some of this information. For example, one thing that's actually sitting in some committee somewhere uh, that was introduced back in June was something called the College Savings Recovery Act. The College Savings Recovery Act is proposing that you can transfer your 529 plan dollars into a Roth IRA if you don't use them. Okay. Now, I would hope that the government will figure out that that is a huge loophole back doorway for people to contribute vast amounts of dollars into Roth IRAs that don't qualify under the income limits normally. Yeah. I will assure you so. I would be doing it with a lot of my clients. Now, whether that passes or not is is irrelevant. The point is these types of things may create opportunities. You know, when I look at my 401k, you know, sometimes people have the option of investing in a company stock inside of their 401k. What they might not know is there's something called the NUA, which is the ability to transfer company stock specifically versus other assets. So think I have a S&P 500 fund in my company in my company 401k, or I have AEP stock. I can transfer that AEP stock into a non-qualified brokerage account and pay, and pay uh, capital gains taxes as opposed to income taxes. Well, I mean, I don't think it's a mystery why you're able to do that. And that's because, you know, executives can get bonuses and huge, uh, huge sums in the mm-hmm. way of company stock. So my, my point is, as this stuff goes through, do I think that it's going to be a, a less favorable tax situation for most if what gets passed is actually approved or what's introduced is actually passed? I do. But are there going to be opportunities as a result of it? Absolutely. You just need to know where they are. Now, fortunately, this is our space. So we're going to have to investigate all of them all the time and figure out. Where's the crack in the wall that we can take advantage of? So the popular phrase that we hear a lot coming out of the advocates for more IRS audits, more IRS agents, is that people are not paying their fair share on taxes and that this is office somewhat political posturing uh, that, hey, don't worry, it's not you, uh, blue-collar guy making $75,000, a year, it's somebody who is making, you know, half a million dollars a year and they're not paying taxes. Uh, do you find that to be what I said it is, political posturing, or do you find there to be some authenticity to it? 100% political posturing, on, on my end at least. Um, and I know that, I know plenty of accountants that do tons of taxes. I used to own an accounting practice. I'm married to one, by the you're way. You're married so to we'll one. See. I didn't know if you wanted so to we'll announce see. that no, on the I'm air. I'm married to one, so we'll see if uh, your opinion agrees with what I'm told. I assure you that wealthy pay people in general pay more than their fair share of taxes. I can now, con- I can concur on that. No, I don't know specifics. I know generalities. 
Now, what we'll typically do, which is kind of the TikTok society that we live in, is we'll point to that one person or one corporation that somehow in one year paid zero in taxes and go, aha, I told you. Mm -hmm. General Electric, you know, what you don't know is that was the one year that maybe they filed a $45 billion loss but didn't lay off any employees or something like that. And I'm certainly not trying to tout that big corporations don't do greedy things because that's, they do, for sure. But I can also tell you that that small business owner that makes $800,000 a year is paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. Now, if if your argument is... Well, okay, so they make eight hundred and they pay three hundred thousand dollars in taxes. Must be nice. Well, that's a different argument. You're right; it is nice. Living mm-hmm. on five hundred thousand dollars a year is a heck of a lot better than living on fifty. But they're still paying three hundred thousand dollars a year in taxes, right. which I don't know if that's their fair share or not. The argument there is what's fair. I don't know what is fair. Uh, so give me a number. And and the, and one thing I'll give the Biden administration, and you know, I try and tap dance on the political side of things, but they're doing a great job of deflecting. And controlling the narrative. Great job. Nobody even asks the questions. Everybody's just saying needs to be fair. What's fair? What's the percentage? What what is it? And at what percentage would small businesses just decide we don't want to hire anybody anymore? I don't know what that number is. It's my job, getting back to the financial planning piece of this, it's my job to figure out ways to navigate those waters to the best advantage of the clients that I work for. Um, And that does not mean moving money to the Caymans and doing illegal things. It simply means if they allow us to max out our 401k contribution, maybe we should do it. There's something called an HSA. We should take advantage of that. If there's a way to backdoor into this 529 over to a Roth thing, maybe we should be doing that. Is real estate a good investment? And for what reason? And how can we use that to our advantage? That's really what we do in our offices. How do we take advantage of the situation rather than just throwing our hands up in the air and saying, well, this sucks. Let's move on. Aptus Wealth Management can be reached at 614-917-1040 or at aptuswealth.com. They offer you a free consultation. Go in, get to know Josh, get to know his team. Have them quiz you on what your plans are toward retirement, and you will find out maybe some things you didn't even know about yourself. And better yet, you'll gain peace of mind in planning toward retirement because you'll understand wealth management and how to maximize your assets and, yeah, protect your assets as well. So when we move from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, it seems to me that there was a difference in philosophy and that Trump felt like if he cut taxes on businesses and corporations, that would lead to growth, more people would be employed, better wages would be paid. The Biden administration is like, no, by allowing companies to write off 100% of a new factory or equipment or things like that, uh, the rich got a big break and it helped corporate uh, titans and it didn't help the little guy. I've looked and researched, Have did the Trump tax cuts work? Not surprisingly, in this polarizing time, you can find sites that say they didn't work at all, and you can find sites that say they paid, they brought in more money than they projected to bring in. So as you sit down with a client, maybe it's a business owner or somebody like that, uh, you want to formulate a great tax strategy for requirement, uh, for retirement. What are some of the questions that you might ask? What are some of the things that you might want to find out and the guidance that you would give someone in that situation? Yeah, so the first thing is going to be taking an inventory of what we have to work with, meaning uh, if somebody's entering or getting close into retirement, uh, do you have a 401k? Do you have an IRA? Do you have a non-qualified plan? You know, deferred comp, is it qualified or non-qualified? And you might be thinking, what is deferred comp and what is the difference between qualified and non-qualified, which is pretty significant, actually. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have these types of different programs, annuities, pensions, Social Security, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then once we take inventory of all those things and we determine based upon, you know, their guidance of how much they need to actually retire on, what is the most efficient way to use all those tools to fund their retirement? And I think we've talked about this in the past, but oftentimes that decision seems very arbitrary to people. You know, I'm going to use this account until it runs out, then I'm going to move to this one, and then I'm going to turn this one on. And I'm going to... That may be the worst tax plan ever. Um, and it's not just what you make, it's what you keep. So our objective is how do we make your tax return as simple as possible? Mm-hmm. How do we keep your tax bill as low as possible? And then all while making sure that you don't run out of money through your entire retirement. That sometimes is very simple, sometimes is incredibly complicated. Is it? Too simple to say that you're looking for pockets to place assets that delay tax liability? Is that a good rule of thumb, or sometimes is it best to get some tax liability out of the way up front? Both. You're absolutely right. So you just got done uh, mentioning the Trump tax cuts, and I think it would be difficult to argue that during the Trump administration and until today, obviously because those haven't been repealed yet, we're in some of the lowest tax environments in recent history. I mean, I, I can't think of a time in my lifetime where taxes have been lower. So does it make sense to do things like maybe do a Roth conversion, which is simply taking pre-tax money, paying the taxes on it today so that you never have to pay taxes on it ever again, including growth? Now, there's some you know stipulations on how you do that and how long you have to hold it. But do you believe tax rates are going to go up or down from here? If you believe they're going to go up, in your situation as well, then it may make sense to do that today. If you believe that you're going to live on a lot less down the line than you are to maybe making today, then it might not make sense for you. And, you know, as it is always with our industry, you'll hear people running around going, if you haven't, if your advisor hasn't recommended a Roth IRA conversion, you know, you got the wrong advisor. Well, maybe he has done that research and he's just determined that it doesn't make sense for you or vice versa, right? So it's something that we always take into account in our office is tax planning, Roth conversions, et cetera. And it's different for everybody, but the objective is the same for everybody, and that's minimize taxes. Josh Pick, Aptus Wealth Management, 614-917-1040. You can reach them on the web at aptuswealth.com. Set up your free consultation and mark your calendars to listen to Josh and I every Monday, Monday on The Answer at 12.30 p.m. Okay, so I'm thinking of a couple that comes to you, uh, everything they they prioritize retirement. They prioritize a plan for everything. They have a child who's uh, five, eight years old. They envision their child going to college. They see college costs uh, skyrocketing. What would you tell them about saving for college? Is it best to do it through one of these 529 plans? Are these good deals for investors? Um, is there, let's say their child decides not to go to college then? Is that money there forever. You just mentioned that there might be something coming that would allow them to put it somewhere else. These kinds of opportunities and availabilities that federal entities make available for people to encourage them to do things that they might want to do anyway, like save for college, as you assess them, are they the best way to do it? Or are they a way to do it that gets people's attention so they do it? And if they didn't have that thing to call their attention to it, the lack of a 529 plan, they wouldn't get around to doing it. That's an interesting perspective. I've never thought of it that way, but certainly some politician somewhere said, I'm going to come out with this plan to be able to help people save from college, and that's going to be what I hang my hat on, right? Um, And that's not to say that a 529 isn't a great option for saving for college, but as with all options, there are some pros and cons to it. 
And the pro to it is it works like a Roth IRA for college. So you put money in pre-tax or post-tax, excuse me, it grows tax deferred, use it for college, it's tax-free. And if you start this when your kid is, you know, five years old, like you had mentioned, over 13 years, that's a lot of gains tax-free. The downside, oh, and there's another benefit, forget about that. In the state of Ohio, if you use the College Advantage plan, you can write off to, you can write up to $4,000 in contributions off per year on your state income taxes. So if you're in the 22% bracket, you know, it saves you 800,000 bucks, right? So there's some advantages to it. The disadvantage is what if your kid, you know, we were talking earlier today about maybe my kid decides to be an electrician to work on that new plant that's going on out east. Well, then what do I do with the money? Well, then it doesn't work quite as efficiently. Now, if this new proposal goes through, which I'm not sure it will, but if it goes through that was introduced in in June, excuse me, this year, well, then you'll just be able to roll those dollars over into a Roth IRA and you're no worse for the wear. I think the answer for most people who are putting in 50 or 100 bucks a month towards their kid's college education, a 529 is a great place to start. The problem with the 529 is if you have other issues already going on inside of your plan. Remember, the college planning is one piece of the puzzle. Let's say you're underinsured. So you're contributing $100 a month, but then you get in a car accident, you die. You save $900 towards college. Is your kid good to go to college with the 900 bucks, and now with a single income, one parent left? Hmm. You probably need another piece of that puzzle to the plan. So maybe coupling that with a term life insurance policy made sense as well. Or maybe actually just doing an overfunded life insurance worked even better to begin with. It all depends on the individual scenario. And I I know I I say this all the time, and I I definitely don't want to um, always say it depends and not give anybody an advice, but it does depend. So what I can do in this format is simply give you the pros and cons of each of them. Um, There are a lot of pros to a 529. I'll answer your question in the best way I know how. I have a five-year-old son. He has a 529. Okay. So I'm obviously contributing. Yes. How much do I contribute? $4,000 for the tax break every year, not a penny more. Um, does that mean that's all I'm saving towards college? Uh, maybe, maybe not. It depends on the year, depends on financial situation, but I'm not going to contribute more to that to the 529. It's going to go somewhere else. And the reason for that, I have three kids. So if I do 4000 a piece, number one, that's a lot of money per yes, month. It is. Two, uh, if one doesn't go, I haven't funded enough for the other two as it is. So I can just take that money and spill it to the other. Because you can always reassign who the money goes to. But if I had, let's say I was you know, very fortunate and I had $250,000 saved for each of them for college and one of them doesn't go, well, now I'm left with a good problem to have, $250,000 that I have to kind of unwind from the 529. It might have been better placed somewhere else. That's what I wonder. Like, is is it, I mean, $250,000 and you're looking for a place for it is good, but uh, if you had not put it in a 529 plan, is it now, is the government now going to be able to get its hands on it where it wouldn't have if it were used for its intended purpose? Yeah, well, the taxes would be arguably worse uh, because you'd be paying ordinary income taxes on all those gains as opposed to if it was just put into a non-qualified brokerage account, it would be capital gains, um, which brings us to, you know, you keep on going down this rabbit hole. You go, well, if I'm going to put it in a non-qualified brokerage account, which means it's not in any sort of IRA or 529 or any of the alphabet soup, well, should I invest it differently if it's in one of those accounts? And the answer is yes, because I want to make sure that it all qualifies for long-term capital gains as opposed to short-term. Now, why would that benefit me? Well, if I'm in the 32% tax bracket and I liquidate my 529, well, now I'm paying 32% in taxes plus potentially penalties. If I was in the capital gains bracket and I was in the 32% tax bracket, that means I'm paying 15% capital gains. I'd be better off doing that. So it all depends on the individual situation. And if you're listening to this right now and you're going... 
my lord, my head's like, how could I possibly understand my how to do spinning. this? Yeah. Well, then you probably feel a lot like I do when I watch somebody, you know, play chess and they just start moving pieces around the board. And I go, well, how the you can't just hop it. Yeah. What do you? Do? You can't just pawn doesn't. Um, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, fortunately, this is all I've done my whole career, and it mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense to me. So it, much like people who play chess, can just see the board. It's easy for people who are in this space to just see the board. Um, so it's it's easy for me to point you in the right direction. And that's why it makes so much sense to get with a professional like Josh and the Aptus team because, you know, a lot of us are playing checkers and we need people who are playing chess so that you don't get caught unawares with these kinds of things. And, you know, I've experienced this in my own family. My father thought that it would be a great idea late in his life to transfer uh, the property that he and my mom lived in to his three sons. He didn't tell us. And then he passed away suddenly and it turned out that wasn't a really the smartest thing that he could have done. So there are a lot of reasons why you need a professional financial wealth manager, and that is exactly what you get at Aptus Wealth Management. Get a hold of them, your free consultation, 614-917-1040 or Aptus Wealth, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. Let's talk about the investment scenario that everybody wants. You know, you invest a little bit of money in a stock or in something, and blammo, it hits, and you know, I just think that that's everybody's investing fantasy. It might even be yours. I don't know. How could but, it not be? Uh, but right. it, how realistic is that now in our environment where there are so many things that are uh, algorithms and so much government regulation and so many things are watching and there's always this fear of insider trading and all those kinds of things? Like, do those things still happen? Uh, what kind of risk are you exposing yourself to if you're looking for that? Uh, I think most of those things, if you want to carry the fantasy out to the nth degree, it's what I'd call hunch investing. Like you like a company, you think their stuff is cool, you think it's going to catch on, you think it's a great product, it meets a need, nobody's discovered it yet, and lo and behold, you invest a little bit of money, and wow, you're right. I know I've outlined a lot of things there. I'm not even sure there's a question there, but I think that's what everybody sort of thinks is, I wish this could happen to me. Well, and we hear the scenarios. I mean, I just read a story about uh, Lance Armstrong the other day. I don't know if you've seen this, but I have not. You know, Lance Armstrong had his share of legal troubles, and and he would have went darn near bankrupt if he hadn't have forgotten about the fact that he gave this new investor that was out of Harvard two hundred fifty thousand dollars as part of his startup hedge fund, and that that new investor who was super smart, somebody recommended him to. He literally forgot about this, by the way. Invested the lion's share of his hedge fund in the IPO of Uber. And that turned out to be many, many millions of dollars, and it really kind of saved Lance Armstrong. And now I'm paraphrasing this whole story a lot. But we hear stories like that, and they go, well, why didn't, why couldn't I, you know, I wish I would have invested X amount of dollars in Uber as well. I I think there should always be a place for those type of investments. Um, However, that is not a predictable plan. So let's contrast two different styles of investing and then blend them together into what I think is a reasonable strategy. Way number one is what we hear nonstop now, and that's money managers don't beat their index, just put all your money in Vanguard's S&P 500. That is not a bad strategy, by the way. But are you ever going to have happen what you just said? No. Absolutely not. It's never going to happen. So why do people do that? Well, because they hear that most money managers don't beat the index. Well, why don't they beat the index? Because most money managers are managing as much as Vanguard, and ultimately, when they say they have a large large cap blend fund, they have 498 of the 500 stocks that the S&P 500 has anyway, and then they charge a fee on it. So really, are they doing anything other than trying to time the purchases a little better? Not really. If you then take that ideology and you say, well, I can't put all my money in 
hoping Uber IPO goes up. Yeah. So how do we do this? Well, that does not mean that stocks inside of the S&P 500 individually don't do really well. I mean, I bet if you looked at the S&P 500 does 10% a year, I bet you there's five or 10 stocks in there that did 50 or 60, right? So rather than picking money managers that just kind of mimic an index and pick 500, why don't you pick a separately managed account manager who maybe picks 30? Now, 30 is still ample diversification, particularly if you own a few different of these things, right? Now you have maybe 100. I personally have about 130 some odd holdings. I would say that's pretty well diversified. hundred. Yeah. I mean, I don't even have more than 2% in anything, right? But does that give me a larger opportunity to be able to take advantage of some of those romantic flyers that we like to talk about at cocktail hours, right? Uh, I think it does. If you want to then allocate maybe 2%, 5%, and, you know, I want to play in a little bit of crypto, or I want to maybe go buy something in real estate, or I want to buy that new flash-in-the-pan stock. I had a client buy Crocs right when it started, you know, when it went bankrupt, and then somebody bought it and took off, and, you know, he's still talking about it. The reality is... He put about $3,000 in Crocs and Croc, mm-hmm. and then it went up to, you know, maybe it was a crazy story. I mean, it went up to like 100 but the part of the story you don't know is he was already worth about $3 million. So yeah. did it move the needle? Yeah. Not really. But he doesn't tell you about how he no. earned the other 2.9. He only tells you about how he earned the 100 So know that when you're talking to people. It's a romantic story that people love to share. But they don't tell you about the other nine that went belly up. By the way, as we wrap up today, like we haven't talked about crypto in a long time and crypto's mm-hmm. kind of faded off the radar. What's the status of crypto right now? Well, I mean, it's certainly got a black eye. There's no doubt about that. Do I think again to refer back to what we talked about before, do I think that the idea of blockchain and the idea of a cryptocurrency still very much has legs? I do. Mm-hmm. Um, do I think it's still very very volatile? I do. Do I think that there's enough people running around saying how they made a bazillion dollars in crypto? enough of them that's going to make it still romantic for people to buy i do is it any in any of our portfolios no that tells you everything you need to know folks but there's a lot more you need to know aptus wealth management stands ready to tell you those things to coach you through the process and help you understand it aptus wealth management 614-917-1040 on the web at aptus wealth aptus aptuswealth.com we'll talk to you again next week Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.